2: We are gathered here on Hallowed Ground, choruses raised, heads bowed down, we'll gather here on Hallowed Ground to sing this all the way.
3: Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, accompanied by my wife Beth.
4: Hello, everybody.
3: Now, for those of you who don't know the show, the show is in two parts. The first part of the show, we talk about estate planning and elder law. The idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going through court, avoiding probate, and as far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from nursing home bills. The second part of the show, we talk about either history, politics, religion, nostalgia, and it's not necessarily equal parts, and we're going to have two interviews on tonight, we're going to be talking to the daughter of one of our favorite all-time actors, Robert Mitchum's daughter, Patrine. And she's going to be talking about horses in the movies. And it's it's kind of interesting. Again, it's one of those topics that was brought up by our good friend, Pat Fauci, who seems to be our assistant uh, program director at the show here. Also, we're going to talk a little bit more seriously about Pamela Geller and her right for free speech against Sharia law. Getting back to estate planning and elder law, Each week, we play a question on Kevin McCullough's show. He can be heard on WMCA. He can be heard at 3 o'clock Monday through Friday on 970 The Answer. He can be heard 5 o'clock to 6 o'clock. And so, uh, Chris, if we we can hear Kevin McCullough's question of the week,
2: please. All right. Every single week, we uh, like to get you up to speed on what's going on with the law, how it uh, relates to you, particularly for elder care, state care, all that stuff. And I've promised you that Mike Connors would be here to answer your questions, and he is. He also answers them on his broadcast at 8 a.m. on AM 570 The Mission on Saturday mornings and on Saturday evenings at 6 on AM 970 The Answer. But, Mike, this week Joe writes, 13 years ago I had my will and estate planned by an attorney. I now find out that the abstract company he used never filed the required papers regarding my real property. I was told that the person who usually filed the papers had died and they were never filed. I was told by my attorney that I had to redo the paperwork regarding my property and that I had to wait the required time again after they were refiled. Is this all true? What say you, Mike Connors?
3: Okay, not necessarily. It depends what kind of paper trail uh, the person has. And, you know, let's say they have a copy of the deed that was supposed to be filed back then by the abstract company. Well, yeah, you redo the paperwork, you file it you keep the copies that you had in your back pocket and if a question comes up if you're ever applying for Medicaid or if you're going to a nursing home you say hey wait this deed was really signed back thirteen years ago wasn't signed you know two weeks ago whatever and you have a hearing officer and if it's explained properly to the hearing officer we can get by with the original paperwork that was done as long as we have a decent enough paper trail and you're believable if you explain the story to the, the hearing officer and obviously believable if if you have a copy of the other papers with the dates and everything else sure. and hopefully the attorney's going to help out too on that one out well, the most
2: important thing the most important thing is for you to be in contact with Mr. Connors' office so that his people can take a look at what you've got. So if you're in a similar situation to Joe, call him up at 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. And don't forget to give us your questions at MikeConnors at gmail.com. That's MikeConnors, all one word, at gmail.com. Mike Connors, Connors & Sullivan, thanks so much. And, you know, the, the question we just talked about with Kevin McCullough, there's always a
3: good point to remember on this. Practice of law in New York State, United States of America, it's not always black and white. You know, there's a lot of areas, you know, we're not in the Soviet Union where something's the law, something's not the law. We can probably get try to get to the truth of the matter, you know, what's called equity. You know, if something doesn't quite add up, a good lawyer can have the ability to try to put things in perspective where it can fit through the holes. and you know get the results we want. So, you know, never give up, never just feel like, hey, the law says this, it's against me. Maybe we can put a, a spin on it to your advantage and try to do the best job we can do for your parents, your loved ones, whatever. And if if you want to schedule an appointment with us at Connors and Sullivan, always feel free to give us a call at 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500. Now, we have another question. Uh, Beth, what what's our question?
4: All right, this is ours. good afternoon, Mr. Connors. I was listening to your radio show a few months ago and you struck a chord that I'm interested in and I need clarification. It was regarding a living trust and Medicare. My mother is disabled and is considering to move forward to get a living trust, revocable or irrevocable, not sure which. This brings me to my question. Would she be eligible to have Medicare provide her with a home assistant about a month after she enrolls in a living trust, or does she still have to be concerned with a five-year look-back period? I believe on one of your programs, you stated that with a living trust, she would be able to get some support from Medicare the following month after filing her trust. Is this an accurate assumption on my part, or did I misunderstand what was being said? Your time and assistance is greatly appreciated. Thank you, William.
3: All right, so basically the answer is yes. Now, the only thing it's, and I know a lot of people get confused about this, it's not Medicare, it's Medicaid. If you're over 65 or disabled and most of your assets are in in an irrevocable trust, irrevocable trust, you can apply for home care Medicaid if you need it the month following the transfer of the assets into the trust. So yes, the you know the gist the gist is, is true. Mom puts her assets in an irrevocable trust. We're gonna say in February, gets all the assets switched over during the month of February. On March first, the first day of the month following the transfer, she can apply for home care Medicaid if her doctor certifies she needs home attendance, equipment, supplies. She so can obtain that and in a lot of cases people with the proper support can stay in their homes. They don't have to go to a nursing home. And there are programs in New York State where you can hire almost anybody to be your home attendant. You can't hire your spouse, but you could hire one of your children, grandchildren, nephew and niece, significant other, lady that lives up the street. You get paid thirteen hours at thirteen dollars an hour, I'm sorry, and you get fairly good benefits. And there are a lot of good programs in new york to keep you out of a nursing home to keep you home and if you want to explore more of that again you can give us a call at connor's and sullivan at 718-238-6500 718-238-6500 okay we're going to take a short bra- break and we'll be right back in a few minutes i have children how can i protect them if something happens will my
4: assets be lost if i go into a nursing home we have property how it affect the ones still here who will help us take care of grandma
1: attorneys who know their clients and the issues that matter most to them. Connors & Sullivan's estate planning, elder law, and probate attorneys work closely with every client. Don't leave behind problems for your family. Call 718-238-6500 and get a free consultation today.
4: Connors & Sullivan, plan now for later.
1: I think I just found myself believing that I didn't need God. I just had everything under control and church
2: was actually a, a burden to
1: me.
4: I might have gone to church, you know, at Christmas time, gradually quit going.
0: No, I didn't take my faith seriously, which, which
5: probably means I, I never really got it to begin with.
6: You can have
1: a beautiful car, a big fancy home, but if you don't have Christ in your life, there's an emptiness that's there.
7: We are enslaved to power or to greed or to wealth or to lust, especially as a man. But there's a true freedom to not be enslaved, but to
0: attach ourselves to God and to be free. Thank God I'm home. Now that I'm back in the Catholic Church, I'm a new person. I love it.
2: There's peace in our home that we didn't have before.
1: You're coming home to a Catholic family where people today just embrace you. If you've been away from the Catholic Church for whatever reason, we invite you to Time take now for look. Connor's Corner where Mike home takes home a closer look today. at topics like history, politics, religion, and more. Here's Mike Welcome to the Conner's
3: Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. When I was a little boy, I remember watching a movie on TV, The Red Pony, which starred Robert Mitchum. And it was kind of a sad story about, you know, the pony. I think we have today Robert Mitchum's daughter, Petrina Day Mitchum. How are you doing today?
8: I'm doing great, thank you. How are you?
3: Okay, pretty good. Now, if you've written a book about Hollywood hoofbeats, the fascinating story about horses and movies and television, who are some, who are some of the horses that you mentioned in your book?
8: Oh, my goodness. Well, there's so many, you know. I mean, I like to say, really, that the movie industry or the art form of movies was built on the back of a horse because the very first motion picture, technically, was a series of um, photographs of a horse in motion in 1878. And from then on out, the horses have been just so integral to, to movies Um, I mean, you think about it, there wouldn't be any westerns without horses or, um, you know, early war movies and, of course, racing movies and all kinds of movies have horses. So, you know, not all horses are star horses, but from the very beginning of the silent era, there were horses that were huge stars, like Tom Mix's Tony, um, and, you know, moving into the... um, the singing cowboy era. Of course, most people remember Roy Rogers and Trigger. More people remember Trigger, I think, than Roy Rogers. Um, so there have been just a ton of, of very famous horses, especially in the early years of filmmaking. As we got into you know, more kind of realistic westerns later on, horses were were more kind of utilitarian, but still indispensable to film. Now, I just you mentioned the Red Pony and. Um, that's an interesting film because, um, of course, my father was in it, which makes it interesting to me. But the, um, it is a John Steinbeck story based on a John Steinbeck story about a, a pony who um, falls very ill. And um, my father plays a, a kind of a horse whisperer type of a cowboy. And um, anyway, the, the pony in the film was trained by a very legendary Hollywood trainer named Glenn Randall. And, and um, he also trained Trigger. So it's not just the horses who were um, famous, that there were behind-the-scenes trainers who were very, very famous for what they could teach horses to do, especially tricks um, in the silent era and the singing cowboy era.
3: Now, your father was in a lot of westerns. Did he have the same horse in a lot of them, or did he use different horses in every film?
8: Well, um that's a good question. Early on, um he rode a very famous movie horse named Steele in a couple of his early movies. in fact, his first starring role was in a movie called Nevada in nineteen ooh golly, i think forty four. And um, he rode this famous horse named Steele, who was kind of known for making actors look really good. And um so many stars rode that horse, like John Wayne rode him and and Gary Cooper rode him. Joel McCrae very famously wrote him in uh, Steele's very first movie, Buffalo Bill. Steele was kind of a steam sealer in that movie, um, so my dad was lucky enough to to, to write Steele in a couple of his early westerns, but from there on out, it was mostly whatever you know horse that the the um, the rental staple, for the Hollywood rental stable, was providing to the to the movie, and um, of course, as a star, he would get the the pick of the horses or the best horse the best looking horse or the the easiest one to ride because it's quite a um, quite an art for a horse to or a skill I would say for a horse to be able to um, appear in movies and be calm and not distracted by all the um, shenanigans and noise and and crazy things that go on in a movie set horses um, being essentially prey animals, horses that, you know, in the wild are are constantly on the run from the other animals trying to eat them, they're startled very easily. So some, like, fast movements of a camera or um, a truck or something like that um, on a film set could startle a horse. So horses that are, uh, became really good movie horses, um, had a special special temperament and, you know. To begin with, they had to have the right temperament, but they also had to be trained to tolerate all of this nonsense that goes on in the film set. Um, My dad did, um, when he could afford to, he loved horses, and when he could afford to, he started buying some quarter horses, and he did ride one of his own horses in in one of his Westerns.
3: Well, we have to look for it. What Western is that? Do you know?
8: You know, I'm looking it up in my book. Okay. (laughs) Okay. It is a horse named Buck. Um, it was a beautiful little buckskin horse that we raised on our ranch. And um, I want to say good guys and the bad guys, but I could be wrong. I should have been better prepared for that question. <laughs> I'll, uh, ask me another question and I'll find it for you.
3: Okay, well, Jimmy Stewart had the same horse in a lot of his films.
8: Yes, he did. Um, he um, had a horse that was named Pie, of all funny names. But he was a beautiful horse, very elegant-looking, chestnut-colored horse with a white star, and he was um, owned by a lady in Hollywood and Hollywood horse trainer named Stevie Myers. and And uh, Jimmy Stewart loved that horse so much that he tried to buy him, and but he wasn't for sale. But he did get to ride him in seventeen westerns, and um, in fact, it's it's kind of amazing. He was so well trained that. And um, one of his movies, the horse had to walk across the, the door, down the town street by himself without anybody leading him. And the story goes that, and I've heard Jimmy Stewart interviewed on this. It's quite an, an interesting that he just whispered in the horse's ear and told him exactly what he needed to do, and the horse did what he was asked. And everybody in the set was absolutely amazed. But Stewart, he just said, "Well, that was pie." You know, he was just an exceptional horse. So. Um, but that's, that was an unusual alliance, for sure. It, um, it's you know, Usually the stars basically had to ride the horse that was handed to them.
3: There were some famous TV horses, like Silver of the Lone Ranger.
8: Yes, absolutely. Um, Silver um, and, gosh, well, he was probably one of the most famous ones, although, as I mentioned before, Trigger and um, was also a television star. And um, so was Gene Autry's horse champion. So all these horses had um, television presences. Uh, one of the most famous ones was uh, um, Fury, who was a beautiful black horse who had quite a career as a movie horse before he became a television star, which I, I find highly amusing <laughs> because so many humans you know, went that route. And then here's a horse that did the exact same thing and became probably more famous as Fury than he did as a movie star. How
3: about Mr. Ed?
8: Well, he's one of my favorites, and who doesn't love Mr. Ed? Um, he was just a fantastic horse. His, his real name was Bamboo Harvester, and um, he was a parade horse and show horse before he became a star, and again, a highly trained horse, had been trained by a, a man named Lester Hilton, who had also trained a mule, Francis the Talking Mule, to talk in several of her films, and... He used the same method to teach Mr. Ed to talk, or to get Mr. Ed to talk, as he used to with Francis, which um, was actually, there's been a lot of theories over the years, like putting peanut butter on his lip and all different things, but in actual reality, um, it was more a little more prosaic than that. They just attached a very thin nylon filament, like a very thin fishing line, under his lip and up through his halter. and when Les Hilton would pull on that little string off screen, the horse's the horse wouldn't move his lip or Frances would move her lip. So that's how Mr. Ed learned to talk. Um so it was not really a, a trained trick, but um very humane, not not you know, just, just adding a little irritation. So it was just was a you know not not anything that hurt the horse or anything like that. Um later on though, um i mentioned glenn randall earlier he's the trainer of trigger and many other famous horses um his son quirky randall who was also a fantastic trainer um went on to train um a horse for a movie called hot to trot and that in that movie that horse speaks and he he actually taught the horse to move his lips on cue how he did it nobody knows but the randalls just had an uncanny ability to train horses and uh, I know they spent hours and hours and hours with the horses and um, Corky managed to teach this horse to wiggle his lips on with just some kind of hand cue off camera so that's just kind of an extraordinary feat for a horse
3: Now do you go through the history you talked about you know horses being treated humanely that wasn't always the case in Hollywood was it?
8: No unfortunately it wasn't you know especially in the early years Um, You know, early filmmakers didn't, you know, the the attitudes have changed so much towards all animals. And a lot of early filmmakers were just, you know, trying to get these sort of stunts done quickly. And so horses were often tricked into falling, which is, you know, unthinkable today. But they used to use a contraption uh, called a running W where they had their front legs hobbled and a wire either going um, up to the rider who would then pull it at a certain point and pull the horse's front legs out from under him now not only was this risky for the horse a lot of horses broke with their legs during this stunt uh, it's also risky for the stuntman so it wasn't wasn't a good idea for anybody um, you know but the american humane association got involved with movie production in the 40s after after a, the movie charge of the light brigade in which a number of horses were injured and some of them fatally injured and um Errol Flynn, the star of *Charge of the Light Brigade*, spoke out quite, you know, vocally in Hollywood, which was very brave of him at the time. You know, he risked his career to 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 criticize a film producer, but he um, actually is sort of credited with starting the humane movement in, in Hollywood. And um, after that, the American Humane Association began monitoring animal activity on film and putting in place very stringent rules and now you know when you see animals in films or children you'll see their imprint at the end of the film saying you know no no animal or child was harmed in the making of this movie so that's always a good thing to look for.
3: What about films made overseas?
8: You know these days the American Humane usually has usually goes on set overseas or they have um, affiliate organizations that work with their guidelines but especially in the 70s where a lot of movies were made overseas a lot of westerns were made overseas and in countries where they don't regard animals with the same reverence that we do um oversight was often not in place and you know some questionable things that happened to horses in the, in films that were made say in Morocco or even in some cases in Mexico and you know but I'm talking about years ago you know there have been reports even in recent years of horse abuse in film, in Asian movies, I can't really speak to that. You'd have to, you know, ask your listeners to go on the American Humane website, which they have a great website, and and, and if they have a question about a specific film, you know, check that out and see if there, there's any information. But by and large, today, anywhere that animals are used in films, they're they're treated with, you know, very very strict. Uh, humane precautions.
3: What is the favorite scene of your father with the horse that you bring Fawn's memories?
8: Oh gosh well I would have to say the red pony is 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 really my favorite with that my dad did because he actually has a relationship with the pony and you know it's it's a, he's a, playing a very compassionate character in that film you know later on when in his later westerns you know horses were more a, a means of locomotion so um it's he didn't have that kind of a, an intimate relationship with a, an animal that he has in the Red Pony, so I would say that's probably my favorite one. But I did find the, um, the movie that he's riding his own horse in, and the horse was called Bullseye Bee, a beautiful um, buckskin quarter horse with dapples, and it was The Good Guys and the Bad Guys. The Good guys, guys and
3: the Bad Guys, George Kennedy, yeah. Yeah, co-star.
8: 1969, yes.
3: All right. Well, thank you for sharing your memories. The name of the book is Hollywood Hoof Beats, the fascinating story about horses and movies and television by Petrina Mitchum. Thank you very much for being on our show.
8: Oh, my pleasure. As you can tell, I could talk about this subject forever. Thank you so much.
7: Thank you. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress, a government insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Amelia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now 888-943-2646 or try me on the internet at www.quanticbank.com backslash Fmelia. Once again, call 888-943-2646 and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement. Frank Milia,
5: NMLS number 62591. All loans provided by Quantic Bank, NMLS number 403503.
6: Hi, this is Patrick Wayne. I had the good fortune to be raised by a man of strength and courage, a man of true grit. My father, John Wayne, died of stomach cancer in 1979. And in his characteristic style, he ignored advice to keep his disease quiet and campaigned publicly to encourage preventive treatments. He inspired our family to carry on that mission. And today, the John Wayne Cancer Institute at Providence St. John's Health Center in Santa Monica, California, continues to take bold steps in cancer research. The John Wayne Cancer Institute has developed novel approaches to detect cancer, establishes therapies to boost the immune system to fight what my dad called the Big C, and initiated less invasive surgeries. We've made significant advances in treating melanoma and breast cancer. All this has been made possible by my father's legacy of determination and a community of supporters who have helped expand upon that legacy. For more information, visit www.jwcigiving.org.
3: Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask a Lawyer. With me right now, one of the greatest proponents of free speech, Pamela Geller, and she has a book out there, Fatwa, Hunted in America. How are you doing today, Pamela?
9: Very well. Thank you for having me.
3: I mean, obviously, we got an idea of what the book is about, but what is it about?
9: Well, it's my story, and generally, for those that know my work in, in defense of freedom of speech, freedom of conscience, equality for all before the law, no, I've never talked about the personal side, the personal aspect, but seeing is that we're reaching this tipping point, I thought it was crucial that I tell my story. Because while it is my story, I am but a proxy in this, this terrible, long war. And every American, in large or small ways, suffers the same fate that I have. And so I wanted to explain how I got here from being an apolitical New York City career girl prior to 9 /11. I was, you know, the publisher of The New York Observer. I love my art, my fashion, my life, my books, my literature. As I said, apolitical, I assume my freedom, the good cop was on the world beat, evil was defeated in World War II, and then 9-11 happened, and I guess you could say that was my political awakening, because I just always assumed my freedom, I never thought it was in jeopardy, I never thought it could be taken away, and I was wrong. My premise was, was false. And so I felt guilty that I didn't know who had attacked the country. And then when I found out, I felt guilty that I didn't understand the ideology. So I read the Quran and the great scholars, the honest scholars of Islam, Ibn Warraq and Batiyor and um, Wafi Sultan, Noni Dawish, so and so on, and Robert Spencer, of course, and started the website and everything. Most of the work that people know of mine, leading the opposition, for example, to the Ground Zero Mosque, a 16 story mosque atrocity in a building that was destroyed in the 9 11 attacks, to the n- numerous free speech lawsuits I filed in major cities in this country. Um, most people don't understand the fight that we're in. There is this huge machine, this sort of leftist Islamic machine. We saw it in play after the Halloween jihad, where not four hours after the bodies were just still warm, you have NBC News you know, headlines saying, Muslim Americans brace for backlash. This is what we get after every jihad attack. Uh, you know, uh, Sharia, which means do not criticize Islam. I mean, that's why there's a fatwa, numerous fatwas on my head. A fatwa, in case your listeners are unaware, is a legal ruling by a recognized authority under Islam. It is a death sentence, and it is why I have been the target of numerous unsuccessful attempts in Garland, Texas, for example. Uh, They opened fire on an event I had, and last week in Boston, the ringleader of a Muslim plot to behead me, David Wahoud, was convicted in that beheading plot, and and he faces life. But so there is, you know, this is happening in this country uh, where in the wake of the Halloween jihad um, we are told that it's Muslims that are the victims. We are told that there are, we have to fear backlash, which, by the way, never happens. We've been told this after every jihad attack since 9-11. Backlash, uh, Islamophobia, and again, Islamophobia. And, you know, Islamophobia is a label that is used... To silence, it's like the enforcement of Sharia in the marketplace of, of ideas. Uh, any criticism of jihad terror that examines its ideological roots in Islam is called Islamophobia, and you know uh, this deforms our response to terrorism by placing off limits any examination of its guiding ideology, and and it effectively enforces Sharia blasphemy laws in the U.S. by placing. Islam, Quran, Muhammad beyond any criticism, which is why I was blamed in the wake of an assassination attempt on me. There is soft Sharia in the marketplace of ideas. Anyone who stands up to it is is called a racist, Islamophobic, anti-Muslim bigot. And by the way, Islam is not a race. And we need to discuss this candidly and openly. And we cannot, and this is why I wrote the book, because the American people are being disarmed in the marketplace of ideas. They're being disarmed in the information battle space, in the war of ideas. And we're reaching a point where we're, we're talking about, like Europe already has done, criminalizing quote-unquote hate speech. And you know, this is a, a complete violation of the First Amendment. The First Amendment is first, by the way, not fifth or eighth. It's first because it is the most important. It is the, freedom of speech is the foundation of a free society, and without it, a tyrant can wreak, can wreak havoc unopposed. And you know, putting up with being offended is essential in a pluralistic society in which people differ on basic truths. If a group will not bear being offended without resorting to violence, that group will rule unopposed while everyone else lives in fear, while other groups curtail their activities to oppose uh, the violent group. And this results in the violent group being able to tyrannize the others. This is why I wrote, wrote the book. People will be shocked by this book, by the assassination attempts, by the fact that the FBI was there, was in on the planning. We know from the texts that were entered into evidence in a, court, in a trial, in an in indictment in North Carolina of an ISIS recruiter who was t- texting the FBI agent. They were at my event. They were texting the jihadis, Ibrahim Simpson and Nadia Sufi. 60 Minutes did a segment on the fact that they were in a car behind the jihadists, got out of the car when the jihadists got out of the car, took cell phone footage of them, and when the jihadists began firing, they drove away. The FBI did not have anyone there to protect us. The FBI did not have anyone there to defend us. The FBI did not warn us, and it was my security team that took out the ISIS-inspired jihadis. Can you remind us
3: about Garland, Texas, what happened? Because some of the listeners may not remember or put it in perspective.
9: Oh, yes, that's fair. A Garland, Texas, little background. Three days after the Charlie Hebdo slaughter, and if your listeners are unaware, Charlie Hebdo was a French Paris Weekly magazine who had a fatwa on their heads because there was a perceived insult to Islam. They ran a cartoon of Muhammad. And so there was a fatwa issued two years before. By the way, fatwas have no expiration date, just ask Salman Rushdie, whose fatwa was issued in 1989. There was a fatwa issued on their head, and <clears throat> they, um, two devout Muslims opened fire and slaughtered cartoonists, editors, and journalists. Um, three days later in America, three days after the Charlie Hebdo Jihad slaughter, American leaders gathered in Garland, Texas not to stand in support of the freedom of speech. Wouldn't that have been a golden moment for American Muslims? No. They held a conference in Garland, Texas, to stand in support of the ideology behind that slaughter. They held a stand with the Prophet conference in support of the Sharia, in support of the blasphemy laws um, under Islam and against, quote-unquote, Islamophobia. So I organized an art exhibit in that same venue, in that same room, in that same town, in Garland, Texas, Caldwell Center, in support of freedom of speech. It was an art exhibit depicting Muhammad over the past 1,400 years to show that Muhammad had been depicted in art and literature, You know, for example, um, Dante's Inferno, and people weren't always being killed. But clearly people were being slaughtered today in order to violently intimidate the West into adhering to Sharia law, into adhering to Islamic law. And I also, as actually an afterthought, held a competition, an art camp, competition for artists, sketchists, cartoonists, illustrators, if they wanted to submit a piece of artwork. And a former Muslim, Bosh Faustin, won. The winning uh, drawing was Muhammad, a rather handsome, burly Muhammad, saying, you can't draw me, and a cartoonist hand saying, that's why I draw you. And we held this event in Garland, Texas, and, and jihadists opened fire on the event. Now, the idea that I shouldn't do this, the idea that I was being provocative, okay, is Sharia in America. I didn't make the cartoons a flashpoint. The jihadists did. And the Muhammad cartoons are a flashpoint in the discussion about free speech because according to Islamic law, they're blasphemy, punishable by death, and many have been killed over them. And so at issue here is whether we will protect those who draw them and exhibit them and thereby protect freedom of speech and free society, or we censor ourselves and others, thereby, in effect, adopting Sharia. I am not a Muslim. I do not live under Islamic law. The idea that I cannot show a cartoon in 21st century America is absolutely absurd to me. If you had said to me in the 70s, the 80s, or the 90s, when we were still free, that if I said to you, I have a crystal ball. And I can see the future. And in the future, I see a cartoon controversy. I see embassies being burned in 2005. I see Christians being slaughtered in Muslim countries. People, cartoonists, writers, journalists, bloggers in the West being targeted and murdered for a cartoon. You would have looked at me like I had two heads and said, Oh my God, what did Disney do? It would have been unfathomable to you. And yet, here we are. And we've become not only inured to it, we've accepted it, or at least. Clearly the cognoscenti has, the elite, the the cultural zeitgeist has, because no media, no Western media, no American media will run the cartoon. And this is not new. This goes back to 2005 when a Danish newspaper uh, ran some innocuous cartoons, and months later the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, the largest world body at the UN, 56 Muslim countries plus, the Palestinian Authority gathered in Saudi Arabia and decided, months after the, the Danish newspaper ran this series of innocuous cartoons, decided on a cartoon jihad. And all of a sudden, you saw Danish. Flags showing up in the deserts, okay, of Bahrain and these obscure Muslim countries that that barely have electricity in many regions. They had, you know, these manufactured protests and people and Christians were slaughtered and embassies were set afire. And I submit to you, if the Western media had run the cartoons then, the uh, editorial staff, the editorial staff of uh, the, Charlie Hebdo would be alive today. I would be not living under a 24-hour death threat requiring 24-hour security in America today. And as I said to you at the beginning of this conversation, most Americans don't even know that this is happening because the media is aligned with the jihad force. The left is aligned. It's the red-green alliance. They are aligned. It's like we're learning now that ISIS was training Antifa. Perfect. You know, the left is a totalitarian ideology. They have long, it's over 100 years, they've, they've aligned with communism or Stalinism or the National Socialist Workers' Party, which was Nazism. Listen, read Mein Kampf. Read Adolf Hitler's Mein Kampf. Yes, he was a vicious Jew-hater, but he was a hard leftist. He was a socialist. So the, the, the marriage is understandable because it's not left versus right as much as it is the individual, the, the philosophy of individualism versus collectivism. The individual versus the state, the old Kafka, you know, uh, all, you know, the big trials and, you know, all those, you know, great, uh, you know, symbolic movies. Well, it's true. It's the individual versus collectivism, the individual versus statism, and that's the battle. And in Islam, there is no unique soul. Mosque is state, and there is no better system of control on the face of the earth than Islamic law. It controls every basic aspect of daily human life. And unlike Jewish law, which pertains only to Jews, and canon law, which pertains only to Christians, Islamic law asserts its authority over non-Muslims, which is why you see the wholesale slaughter of Christians and non-Muslims and secular Muslims in Muslim countries. It's why you see these uh, incredible wars between Sunni and Shia Muslims. It's not Muslims killing Muslims. You always hear that, oh, the Muslims suffer the most from these jihadi attacks. That's just intellectually dishonest. They're not killing Muslims. The Sunni are killing Shia, because the Shia don't believe the same, in the same way as, Muslim, as, Sunni Shia, as Sunni Muslims do, and so they're not true Muslims, and they must be killed. The Shia, the Iranians, for example, don't believe that the Sunnis are adhering to Islam the way they're supposed to, and so they're killing Sunni. The battle between Sunni and Shia is, who is the true Muslim? not muslim against muslim that's not how they perceive it it's how the west perceives it because the west is woefully and painfully uninformed in this war and i'm going to tell you it's going to get worse i mean the answer to the halloween jihad is barricades no war has ever been won in 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 in, in, on the defense this is like operation fetal position it's embarrassing As an American, I am embarrassed. We're still taking our shoes off at the airport because of Richard Reid in 2001, his shoe bomb, his incendiary shoes that never went off. I mean, we're literally, we're not even playing catch-up. We're a decade behind. And this is an enemy who is protean, ever-changing, always changing it up, always adapting. Like if you look at in Manchester, the Ariana Grande concert, here was a jihadi. Who, because there is so much security going into the concert, so much security, uh, you look at the football games. You can't even take a pocketbook. You can't take a pocketbook. Yesterday in in, in New Jersey, you can't take a pocketbook. You got to take a big Ziploc bag and you show your lipstick and whatever sundry. Your telephone in the charging box in a Ziploc. This is what we are doing. In the meantime, the jihadis go, you know, after the concert as the concert is being let out. They go, he goes into the staging area where you generally would walk in to, be, to present your ticket, and that's where he sets off his bomb because security has gone home because they never attacked after a concert before. They will keep on changing, and we will keep taking our shoes off and erecting more barricades and losing more lives.
3: We have to take a break soon. In the last minute we have right now, what's the message? I know what your message is. What should the public do about it?
9: The public should get the book because they don't know what's going on. They need to get armed in the information battle space. And then, they, I mean, they have to learn everything. And this book will get you up to speed. And then they have to educate those around them. We need to build an army of Davids. Look, it's doable. Uh, no one thought Trump could be elected. Uh, that, was, uh, that was a miracle. So we're there. Now we have, to, we, have to, we have to assemble this army, and we really have to get organized, and we really need to fight back because they're everywhere. Look, it just came out that uh, former FBI uh, Director Mueller, you know, use terror groups, terror groups to scrub counterterrorism from FBI counterterror materials. They didn't uh, uh, ask my group or any organizations involved in the counterterror They didn't speak to Ibn Warwick or Bachayor or the great scholars of Islam. They're asking Hamas groups that fund uh, that, that, that fund terror, that were indicted, unindicted, co in spirit in the largest terrorist funding trial in the nation's history. That. How infiltrated. How infiltrated. We are at the senior level. So people have to get, get the book. It's an act of protest. It's an act of defiance. Oh, yeah. It's an act of Sharia. It, vi- that's right. Everyday people should violate the Sharia because they're counting. You know, just, let me just say one thing. The 9-11 ringleader, Mohammed Atta, on 9-11, on the plane, said to the passengers that was, that, on the plane that was headed to the World Trade Center, stay quiet and you'll be Okay. And that's exactly what they're telling us today. Stay quiet, and you'll be okay. Well, I'm here to tell you, stay quiet, and you will not be okay. You had better roar.
3: Very good. Name of the book, Fatwa, Hunted in America, the author, Hero of Freedom of Speech and Freedom of the Western Civilization.
1: that's 718 238 and listen to ask the lawyer every Saturday morning at 8 on a.m. 570 the mission WMCA hello this is father Frank Pavone of priests
5: for life do you want to hear your parish priests talk more about abortion and the pro-life movement the key mission of priests for life is to help priests do exactly that The first place to start is to listen to your priest and learn how he thinks. What is he most interested in and passionate about? Then, when you find out, link that issue with the abortion issue. For example, a priest who told me that he did not preach much about abortion also told me he was interested in efforts to stop drug abuse. When I told him that those who have abortions are more likely to abuse drugs, it gave him a new motive to preach about abortion. Find out more about how you can help your priest at priestsforlife.org. This is Father Frank Pavone, National Director of Priests for Life.
6: Hi, this is Jean Pottson of Catholic Charities, Brooklyn and Queens, and a former player of the New York Islanders. I'm proud of my years playing hockey with the
3: Islanders during the Cup years. And I'm also very proud of the work carried out every day by Catholic Charities, who is always there for children and youth, adults and seniors, veterans, mentally ill and homeless. With 160 programs and over 3,700 units of affordable housing. For more information, visit ccbq.org. We are committed to changing lives and building communities.
1: Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors.
3: Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, accompanied by my wife, Beth. And we're also right now accompanied by our producer, Chris Cordani. Upcoming on February 12th, we're having the Barondes Lincoln Award at the Civil War Roundtable. Beth, can you tell us something about the award?
4: I surely can. It is actually the Benjamin Barondes Award. And it was established back on December thirteenth, nineteen sixty, by one of the um, stalwarts of the Civil War Roundtable, Dr. John McGowan. Um, Mr. Dess was um, a distinguished charter member and former vice president of the Civil War Roundtable, and it was this award is presented in his memory. Um, the award, when you do win this award, you get this fantastic copy of the bust of lincoln and um we presented each february and the it is to any person or institution and for any contribution to the greater appreciation of the life and works of abraham lincoln as decided by our award committee um it's really we have filmmakers have received the award, it's not just for authors. And it's, it's, quite, it's quite interesting. Um, the last one that I thought was a little bit different was for the movie Lincoln. And um, we had a question-answer session with the screenwriter, and it was a lot of fun. Um, this year is a little bit different, though. The person that's receiving our award is actually deceased. Her sister, who wrapped, it. it this is for um, a novel, a book, and um, her sister finished her manuscript and put it all together and make sure, made sure it got published. And her sister is actually receiving the award for her, which I think is lovely.
3: So that's going to be on Monday, February 12th, 3 West Club, 3 West 51st Street, just off 5th Avenue. Cost for admission for if you're not a member, and if you're not a member, I don't know why you you don't join and become a member, is sixty dollars, three-course meal, an opportunity to talk to the speaker. And just keep in mind, Monday, March twelfth is gonna be one of our favorite speakers, Dr. Kurt Fields playing U.S. Simpson Grant, announcing his bid for the presidency in eighteen sixty-eight. And that's also gonna be at the three West Club on March twelfth. So we don't want to miss that. I'm going to go into an area right now. I'm not that familiar about social media. Uh, Mr. Cardani, why should somebody, you know, touch base with us on Facebook or other social media, and how do they do that?
5: You can find out what's going on with the show. Check out what's happening with the Civil War Roundtable, updates on all of that. And, of course, look at your pretty face, too. Uh, But uh, (laughs) yep, you can ask questions. You can find out what uh, Mike's up to in the community, and you can message us, ask us questions, or even uh, just go back and forth to some interactive stuff with us. There are a lot of things you can do with our social media. We have our Facebook page, which is Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Our Twitter page, which is the Connors & Sullivan Twitter page, CNS Attorneys, that's at CNS Attorneys, spelled out CNS Attorneys. AskMikeTheLawyer.com is your website. You can catch some past shows on there, full shows with all the questions, some of the commentary, and uh, the phone calls that we've had. Well, one thing you can
3: get on our social media, if you check on our social media, Tom Hilton from the Bay Ridge Historical Society took uh, about 135-plus pictures of our military miniatures, and put it and Beth put it up on our Facebook page on Ask the Lawyer. So if you want to get an idea, sometimes we talk about my military miniatures, mostly of the Civil War. We have a few crusaders. My father and I were both military policemen in, in the U.S. Army, so we have a collection of some MPs there. But if, if, if you want to see our collection, there are 130-plus pictures of our c- collection on the S Lawyer Facebook, courtesy of Tom Hilton of the Bay Ridge Historical Society,
4: and it's very nice because I know we've invited y'all to come to Bay Ridge and look at the Mike's collection, and, and I know it's just impossible for some people. Mister Hilton took the best photographs he made. He took time, and it's up close. You can see the little fellows' faces. It is wonderful. So check it out. how does the YouTube work? Chris, because people ask me that all the time.
5: We have a YouTube channel. It's Ask the Lawyer, Connor's Corner Conversations. That's what it's called. Ask the Lawyer, Connor's Corner Conversations. What we did was we took some of the top interviews from the Ask the Lawyer show. We have uh, the conversations with the likes of Roger Craig, uh, James and Michael Parks, different interviews, of course, Andrew V. McLaughlin, and some of the great historians like Ed Bars. We put them on little slideshows, and you can see videos of these interviews on the Connors Corner Ask Mike the Lawyer YouTube channel. So you'll find it. Go to YouTube, type in Connors Corner or Ask the Lawyer. You'll find all sorts of really neat stuff there. Okay,
3: I think we're running out of time. See you next week. Bye-bye!
2: Are we are here, gathered here on hallowed ground. Voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this song away. I have
3: children. How can I protect them if something happens? Will my to
4: assets me? be lost if I go into a nursing home? We have property. How will it affect think. the ones still here? Who will help us take care of Grandma?
1: Attorneys who know their clients and the issues that matter most to them. Connors and Sullivan's estate planning, elder law, and probate attorneys work closely with every client. Don't leave behind problems for your family. Call 718 238 6500 and get a free consultation today.
4: Connors and Sullivan. Plan now for later.
7: The preceding
1: pre recorded program, paid for by Connors and Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC.